If you would stay standing as we come to God's word now, we have the privilege of hearing from Pastor Chris Castaldo. And again, God is so good just in this moment because uh, Chris pastors a church that College Church also planted many years ago, New Covenant in Naperville. And, and Chris is a friend, a colleague in ministry. We've gone through some things together pastorally, some situations that have been a joy to walk with you through in ministering to others. And so I'm so glad that Chris is going to share the word. He also was a founding elder of Hope Fellowship. And so just a sweet time of, of remembrance there. So Chris is going to come and preach from Hebrews 13. It should be on, on the, the screens here. I'm also going to read it out. Hear the word of the Lord to us today. Hebrews 13, 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led us away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods, which is, have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through him then let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Greetings, Hope Fellowship. It's such a privilege to be with you on this occasion of Eric's installation this morning, I want to talk to you about gospel renewal. In Latin, there's a phrase, semper reformanda, and it simply means always reforming. And it's born out of the realization that we are broken. We often succumb to the gravitational pull of selfishness and sin, and we need God to capture our hearts and bring about authentic renewal. There have been renewal movements throughout the history of the church. Every century has seen them. One particular example that was prominent in this area of Lombard, the early part of the 19th century, was called the Stone-Campbell Movement. Uh, Barton Stone and Thomas Campbell desired to reclaim apostolic Christianity. If we could just get back there, you see, to the time of Jesus and his disciples, when Paul was traveling throughout Asia Minor, then we will fulfill our calling. That's what they said. 
If we can remove the layers of man-made tradition, the way you would scrape the barnacles off of the hull of a ship, then we will be the men and women of God we're called to be. They were the ones who popularized the phrase, no creed but the Bible. And as with most Second Great Awakening movements, Stone Campbell was part of that larger Second Great Awakening, it emphasized the individual's decision. You must choose. It's up to you. You need to exercise your will in the right direction. A very popular notion indeed, even to this day. I would submit to you, it's not an accident that the magazine of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association is called Decision Magazine. Now, much of this is good. Just to be clear, Hope Fellowship heartily endorses biblically informed decisions and a responsibility that approaches God with reverence and awe. But here's the point. This emphasis can easily lead to a hyper-individualism. You know what I mean by that? A consumerism that puts oneself into the center of things in such a way that militates against the unity and the vitality of Christ's body. And so this morning, I want to consider this question with you. What is the apostolic vision of the church? And how can we cultivate it together? For the answer, we'll look at Hebrews 13, verses 7 through 17. And here's the first insight, verse 7. We are to remember our leaders. Verse 7. Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Now, who were these leaders after all? We're not really sure. If you've studied the book of Hebrews, you know we don't uh, have clarity on who the writer was or the recipients. It's probably true that this church had been started some 25 to 30 years earlier. And so, likely the founding members, and the, the congregation is called to remember them, these forefathers and mothers who believed in Jesus and began gathering together, who shined forth radiating the presence of God. It's important to note, this is a command to remember. You know, it's not a, a, a nice option, but at the center of church life, they were to call to mind formally these saints of old, uh, to have occasions when their stories were told and there was thanksgiving on their behalf. And informally, as Christians faced the struggle and strain of life, to find inspiration in the fidelity of these saints. Remember that they spoke the word of God to you. That was their chief legacy. I mean, they did a lot. They would have prayed. They would have opened their homes in hospitality, made food. But their greatest contribution, the chief reason for which we give thanks and remember them, is that they taught us the faith. They explained what God has said in Scripture and what it means for us. Thank God for such people, for mentors and friends in the faith that Pastor Eric has already given expression to that this morning. When I was at college church as a new pastor, this was the greatest gift, uh, to be there among these godly men and women who, to that point, had forgotten more than I knew about the Bible. And you have these people in your life 
as well. To be sure, they are a gift from God. But another aspect that also deserves consideration is the, quote, outcome of their life, their witness, their example, their lived faith. This is another command. So we're to remember and we are to consider this example. How they listened to you when you got together for the potluck after the service. They, they gave you their undivided attention. They looked you in the eye and they were concerned. Remember that. Consider that. How they loved one another as husband and wife. That example of, of sacrificial love. The way they would wash the feet of the saints. Today, maybe it's washing the dishes after a mission group. All of that. And by the way, this is precisely why we need gathered worship and fellowship. Why we need to be together in person. Thank God for the live streaming and screens by which we were able to stay connected over the last two years. But my friends, let us be clear, that is never a substitute for the people of God gathering together as the church. The Greek word here is mimeste. You can hear the English word mimic in there. We're to emulate one another. And that requires proximity. can't be done remotely. Why can we be sure of this, you ask? Verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. For four years, I attended Moody Church when I was a Bible college student. There in the front, perhaps you've seen it, those letters in gold, Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So many implications from this statement. But what does it mean here in the flow of Hebrews 13? Well, simply put, the same Jesus who was speaking back then is speaking today and will continue to speak through his word, his inspired Word, his word that is without error, a word that is embodied and proclaimed by the church. See, the, the church is the, the agent that brings this authoritative word to us. It seems to me we struggle with this idea in our contemporary world of the, the institutional church. It's much easier and perhaps more fashionable to have your private spirituality. Why is this? Why do we struggle? Well, I mentioned renewal movements of the 19th century, the decisive way in which they have shaped the religious psyche of Americans. The epitome of this was perhaps Ralph Waldo Emerson, who famously said, quote, let us demand our own works and laws and worship. Why do we need to listen to these voices from the past? We can figure it out. We can approach God in our own way. Supreme Court Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes Jr. called Emerson's vision our, quote, new de declaration of independence. Religiously speaking, this is the right way. Interpreting all of this, Harold Bloom, the literary critic, says, Jesus in such a conception is not a first century Jew but is instead a contemporary American, a trailblazer. He then concludes, what was missing in all of this quite private luminosity was simply most of historic Christianity. That's all. Just the faith that was once and for all handed down to the saints. 
Well, what does this mean to us? Well, let's not make the mistake of thinking that we live in Acts 29. Thank God for the church planting network. God has used it profoundly. But my friends, a great deal of history has happened between Acts 28 and the year 2022. And that history matters. We stand on the shoulders of our forefathers and mothers of the faith those who made sacrifice, those who trusted Christ in the crucible and who have imparted the word and their godly example to us, the great cloud of witness that surrounds us. Justin Martyr, Polycarp, Athanasius, Perpetua and Felicity, Ambrose, Augustine, Anselm, Bernard, Thomas Aquinas, Martin Luther, John Calvin, Thomas Cranmer, Richard Sibbs, John Owen, Jonathan Edwards, Catherine Booth, Charles Spurgeon, Corey Timboom, Carl Henry, Francis Schaeffer, R. Kent Hughes, Mike Bulmore, Jeff Brewer, John Trott. We are in their debt. They are the individuals through whom God has extended, extended his hand of mercy and grace by helping us to see who Jesus is and what it means for us in this very moment. And so I want to issue an exhortation to my brother, Eric. You'll get yours in just a moment, but this is aimed at Eric. My brother, don't forget that your role is ministerial. It's not magisterial. There's no bishop here laying on hands, imparting a sacramental power by which you can consecrate a Eucharistic host. Now, you are called to minister the Word of God. That's where the authority is. You have no authority of your own. So you will equip the saints. You will mentor individuals. And by God's grace, by the Holy Spirit working through that Word, you will see the kingdom advance. Eric, you are not a CEO. You'll be a leader. And I believe you'll be a very effective leader. You're not a public influencer, thought leader, whatever it's called, even though you will be influential. You're not a podcaster or a blogger or an author. First and foremost, you are a shepherd. There's only four things that you have to offer these people. Prayer, time, love, and truth. That is your ministry. And so all of us, we remember, we consider, and imitate the faithful legacy that is before us. And that leads to the second insight, verses 9 through 14, keep the faith. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We so often have an idealized notion of the early church. You know, that's when things were pure and unadulterated. Uh, if only we could go back in time. But the truth is, they were sinners just as we are. Have you ever read the book of 1 Corinthians? It was a mess. There were a host of strange teachings. Some denied Christ's incarnation, 1 John 4. Others insisted on asceticism, that is an arduous self-denial, Colossians 2. 
In this community, the, the heresy or false teaching involved food. What did this look like? Well, maybe it was a legalistic diet, similar to the kosher laws of Leviticus 11. Veganism can sometimes move in this direction. We undoubtedly have some vegan brothers and sisters out there this morning. God bless you. Uh, but you know, sometimes it takes a militant turn. I have a friend whose brother was a deacon in the church, but now he says of himself, I'm no longer a Christian, I'm a vegan. You know, it's that kind of religious extreme. Maybe that's what was going on, something of that nature. Or it could have been a ritualistic meal in one's home with cultic elements that you are expected to attend. Verses 10 through 12, however, suggest that it revolved around temple sacrifices. That was the the locus, the the centerpiece. Hebrews 9.9 says, Gifts and sacrifices are offered in this tradition that cannot perfect one's conscience, but deal only with food and drink and various washings. Now, Why were these rituals no longer valid? Well, because Jesus gave his life, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And his blood is the only true and effective solvent for our guilt. And in dying, Jesus brought to fruition all of the temple sacrifices. Now, how shocking this would have been to some of the Jewish Christians who received this letter The notion that these traditions they had observed year after year, century after century, were now considered strange and illicit. Now, here's the lesson, it seems to me. Familiar things, even good things, become bad things when they supplant the gospel. Familiar things, even good things, become bad things when they displace the gospel. And so our text says, don't be led astray. Instead, we are to be strengthened by grace. Now, how does that work? Well, verse 10, we have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. Think tabernacle. The word altar here is a metonymy. That's a literary device in which the part represents the whole. You have a a neighbor just drove home with a new Corvette. You say to him, wow, nice wheels. It's not simply the wheels you're commenting on. It's it's the whole car, but the, the part represents the whole. And so the altar represents the entire sacrificial system. And that sacrifice, once again, is finished. At the death of Jesus, the veil of the temple was torn in two so that sinners such as we now have access to the divine presence. Hebrews 10.22, let us draw near then with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Some days, you know, we look in the mirror and all we see looking back at us is a sinner. We think about all the things we've said and done. We are filled with shame, condemnation, and self-loathing. There are other people who regard themselves as religious champions. They feel quite good about how they're doing before God. Jesus addressed this with the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? The tax collector, so weighed down by his sin, can't even look toward heaven, unlike the Pharisee, 
who looked upon the tax collector and said, oh Lord, thank you that I'm not like this man. Right? Who gets access between those two? It's the humble one, the repentant one. To this one I will look, said Isaiah, he who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. And that brings us into the mystery of the gospel, verse 11. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Remember the day of atonement. The high priest would take the blood from the bull and the goat and sprinkle it on the mercy seat atop of the Ark of the Covenant in the holiest place. And then after making atonement for the sins of the people, that blessed covering, the bodies of those animals would be taken outside of the camp and entirely burned. The bull and the goat right there found themselves in the unclean domain, the place of death and destruction. And furthermore, it's the place to which violators of the covenant would be taken and executed. So what does this have to do with us? Bringing the bodies of these slain animals outside of the camp. Verse 12, so Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. John 19 tells us how Jesus was crucified outside the gate of Jerusalem at a place called Golgotha or Calvary. There, God's judgment fell as Jesus hung upon the cross, exclaiming, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus doing for us what we could never do for ourselves. And that is the way, the only way, we are sanctified, set apart. As Paul put it, God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us, so that we, sinners, might become the righteousness of God in him. What's the implication of this? Verse 13, therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. In other words, follow Jesus, embrace Jesus, identify fully with Jesus. Now, this had real-world implications for the recipients of this letter. They were being shunned, ostracized, marginalized. Many of them were losing their jobs and unable to feed their families. We are, thankfully, not facing that kind of persecution here today. Hopefully, that will continue to be true, that we'll have freedom in our country. But there's always a cost to discipleship. I remember years ago watching uh, an installation sermon that Dr. Dwayne Litvin preached for his son-in-law, Jay Thomas, and there he delineated cross time from crown time. And Dr. Litvin made the point, the day is coming when we will be in God's presence. We will receive the crowns of glory that we will then promptly throw at the feet of Jesus in worship. And what a glorious day it will be. But that day hasn't come yet. Now we live in cross time. Now it's the time of suffering and sacrifice, following the footsteps of our crucified Savior. Interestingly, though, 
There is one place in the Old Testament where going outside the camp is, in fact, positive. After Israel's adultery at Sinai, the golden calf, Moses pitched the tent of meeting, it says, outside of the camp, Exodus 33, verses 7 through 11. So that now this place of death and destruction becomes what? What does it become? A place of intimate communion with God. Two weeks ago, my friend Dave lost his sweet wife, Barbara. She died far too early. And I was with Dave as I was beginning to think about this passage. There he is in the valley of the shadow of death, pain, sorrow. It's indescribable. Where do you find any solace? Where do you find any consolation when you're in that place? My friend, the tent of meeting is outside the camp. God meets us there in that place. How do you know it's true? I'll tell you how it's true, because Jesus stepped out of heaven. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. That is where we find him, my friends. That leads us then to the glorious promise of verse 14. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The city of man where we now live will always be inhospitable to Christian faith. But the day is coming when the city of God will descend out of heaven, the new Jerusalem, right, as it describes in Revelation 21. So, my friends, don't allow your faith to deconstruct. Is that how they put it today? Deconstruction of faith. Don't turn back. Press on toward the goal. When I was at Gordon-Conwell for seminary, we had this chapel speaker who had been a missionary all of his life in some country in Africa. He was old. I don't know how old. I might not see him as so old now, but back then he looked old. And uh, there had been civil wars, and he was taken captive on one occasion by uh, a neighboring tribe and all of that. And then he said, after all of my experience of life, I think I understand the essence of Christian calling. Now, when a man like that makes uh, an introductory statement of that nature, you pay attention. And here's what he said. It's like riding a bicycle up a steep hill in the middle of a two-lane highway. You have cars and trucks racing by you on both sides, and your calling is to continue to pedal. Stay on the yellow line. You can't veer to the left or to the right lest you become roadkill, and so you keep your eyes fixed upon the prize, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And you know what? The longer you live, the more you pedal, the harder it is. There's this notion out there that as you get to be old, Christian life gets easier. It's a lie. Don't believe it. I'm not there yet, but I minister to a lot of older people. I see what they go through. But God, nevertheless, provides His empowering presence so that we can continue to pedal, persevere, endure. Don't be led astray. But we're not just getting through life. There's something for us to do here and now. That leads us to verses 15 and 16. We worship the Lord as our overriding purpose in life. 
Verse 15, through him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. I can't read this verse without thinking of my old colleague Chuck King, uh, music director at College Church, because he always had this attached to his signature in his emails. It's a manifesto for public worship, is what it is. The original sacrifice of praise, of course, was a slain animal, Leviticus 7, verses 12 through 15. Now, however, it happens when we gather in worship. Every Sunday, week by week, we, the people of God, assemble together on the first day of the week when Jesus was raised from the dead to say to one another and to a watching world that we belong to him, that Jesus Christ is Lord. My friends, how important is that to you? How important is that? Realize there's so much that we do in the Christian life that's a means toward an end. It's important. You know, things like reading the Bible and prayer and sharing our faith, vitally important. But those are not actually ultimate things. They're intended to move ourselves and our loved ones and those to whom we, we minister closer to Jesus. Worship, however, is an ultimate thing. It is not a means toward an end. It is an end unto itself. Yesterday I was at the funeral service of Gerald Edmonds. Some of you know his name. Longtime professor at Moody Bible Institute and then music director at Moody Church. We had a moment where uh, Pastor Erwin Lutzer appeared and said a few words after working with Professor Edmonds all those years. And he made this statement. He said, look, my job comes to an end at death. You're not going to need me to preach the gospel like I do now. But the worship of God's people will continue forever and ever and ever. So make no mistake about it. You walk into this building and you got, you know, blessed cupcakes or donuts back there. And it all looks rather mundane. But what you do now is of eternal significance. An importance that will never diminish or fade. And it's not simply singing, but the vision of worship described here is full-orbed, it is thoroughgoing, it is worship with a capital W, so verse 16, do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. Such worship before the face of God, quorum Deo, that which recognizes His supremacy, spills over to the horizontal plane so that when we approach one another with that quality of devotion and love and service, we are worshiping, you see. This phrase, to do good, describes a tangible sacrifice. Again, in context, these were Christians who were beginning to suffer greatly. They were losing their jobs. They were trying to feed their families, to eke out a living. And so it, it meant giving financially, helping the saints to make it through to the next day. This is true koinonia. That's the word here that's translated to share, right? It is a heart-to-heart fellowship that not only worships together, but locks arms in the context of life and does things together as a church family. This is what's pleasing to God. But worship is under attack these days. Some pastors that I know call this threat the trifecta. Technology consumerism, and isolation. 
technology. It's these devices that we look at constantly, neurotically, and from them we imbibe the, the values of the world in such a way that it pulls us away from worship. Consumerism, it's the, it's the flowering of the hyper-individualism with which we started, where now I'm at the center of the universe and it's all about me, it's my preferences and, and what I want. I may come to church a couple of times a week, but I kind of like to stay home too, you know, because it's comfortable. I got my fluffy slippers, just turn on the screen, there they are, right? Consumerism, it's a real problem. And then isolation. You have perhaps returned to gathered worship week by week. And yet so many Christians have not yet re-engaged the ministry. They're not serving from day to day. They're not plugged into a mission group. They're, they're not availing themselves to help out. It really is the Pareto principle, the 80-20 rule, or, or less than that. We need you, my friends. Isolation needs to come to an end. And so let's have a moment of honesty, shall we? How's it going for you? To the extent that your life reflects the trifecta. Do you have the deep-seated joy that comes from worshiping and serving the living God? Hmm? Do you have a sense of satisfaction that transcends the gifts that this world offers? How is your stress level? How is your anxiety? God made us for worship. That is the central priority for which we live. It is full-orbed. The center of gravity is right here on Sunday morning, and then it extends to every other part of your life. And if you're feeling hollow or shallow, this is probably a good moment for you to consider how things are going in the area of worship. This is our overriding purpose and source of joy. And that leads to the fourth insight. Verse 17, support your leaders as a matter of first importance. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Now notice how we've returned to the topic of leaders. We started here in verse 7, right? Remember your leaders. And now we're told to obey your leaders. And there is, I think, mutual submission. At the beginning of the passage, it emphasizes the sacrificial love of the leader, and then in verse 17, we're told to obey and submit to those leaders. Now, there's two sides of the horse from which you can possibly fall. One is for a pastor to have too much authority and to use it inappropriately, to be a bully, and goodness, we're, we're all very aware of what this looks like thanks to various podcasts that have gained popularity and for, well, goodness, we're in Chicagoland, right? There have been so many... A tragic examples of leadership gone awry in the church. But the other extreme is for the pastor to be hesitant in exercising leadership. Maybe he's afraid that someone will point a finger at him and accuse him of some kind of spiritual abuse because he is trying to lead the church. And this is why we need a plurality of elders. Maybe this is a word for the elders now. You need to surround your pastors with protection and with support. 
You need to be their greatest cheerleaders and give them the benefit of the doubt and extend appropriate accountability. Now, let me exhort the congregation, and I'm going to do it with the word that's used here in verse 17. Submit to Eric's leadership. Even if you don't fully resonate with his style here or there, trust him. Give yourself to his oversight. Why? Because such leaders keep watch over your soul. That's his calling. The image is of a shepherd who is staying up throughout the entire night. He's giving such careful attention to the safety and well-being of the sheep. They watch, quote, as one who will give an account, a sobering and eternally consequential calling. It is truly a matter of life and death. Therefore, cooperate, or in the words of our text, let them do it with joy and not with groaning. I have seen many a groaning pastor over the last couple of years. I spend a good amount of time with pastors. I've convened a gathering of pastors in Naperville with whom I meet with some regularity, and we open up. That's how I learned about the trifecta. And let me tell you, many of them are groaning. And what's the difference between a joyful pastor and a groaning pastor? Simply this, the joyful ones are supported and protected by their church, particularly by their elders. The groaning pastors lack that support and protection. A healthy relationship between a pastor and his church is a little bit like a marriage. Think of Ephesians 5. Husbands are called to love their wives sacrificially, to lay down their lives for their beloved wife. And wives are called to submit to their husbands, to support them, to give them the benefit of the doubt, to follow their leadership. This is when the church flourishes, when there is mutual support, when there is trust, when there's a common vision, when there's collective service, when verse 7 and verse 17 both come to bear. And so I want to conclude where we started with the idea of gospel renewal, semper reformanda. And I want to give us a few moments to do business with God. This is an important moment in the history of Hope Fellowship. And I want you to take a moment before the face of God now and consider what we've just heard to honestly evaluate where you are at Maybe you're not adequately engaged. Maybe it's time to put away those fluffy slippers. Put a stake in the ground and say, I'm all in. I'm going to join a mission group. I'm going to volunteer. I'm going to live life on mission. Maybe you're someone who struggled at hope. I don't know. Um, but maybe, for whatever reason, it's been hard for you over the recent past. And you have some grievances. And at some level, you want to make sure that Pastor Eric does it right. You have a concern. You're going to extend accountability. May I suggest you bring that before the Lord? Remember the word we heard earlier? We read altar. Just give that to the Lord as a sacrificial offering. and Put it in the past and say to the Lord, I want to see the unity and vitality of your church 
And I want to do whatever is necessary to promote it. And so let's take these moments now, and then I will call us together shortly with the words of Hebrews 12, 28. Let's go to the Lord. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and thus let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. For our God is a consuming fire. Amen.